The Bible reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enrol the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aror, south south of the town in the gorge, and then went through, through Gad and on to Jazer. They went to Gilead and the region of Tartim Hodshi, and on to Danjan and around towards Sidon. Then they went to the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Finally, they went to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem... The Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials came toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your fleshing threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord, 
that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. There are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for wood. Your majesty, Aruna, gives all this to the king. Aruna said, also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the fresh threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Thanks, Laura, for reading uh, for us this morning. And let me invite you to keep your Bibles open to 2 Samuel 24, because uh, we're going to be referring to it uh, frequently uh, this morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, uh, my name's Luke, and I'm a member here at Trinity Church, Colonel Light Gardens. Uh, and it's a real privilege uh, to get an opportunity to share with you from God's Word, and a real privilege to get to close out our series on the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. It's also a bit of a privilege for me to be the one to sit next to these lovely plants next to me. Uh, I've admired them for many months now, it feels like, like many of you. Uh, I had questions whether they were living plants. Uh, it has been confirmed that they are living uh, and that they, these have been the same plants all th throughout. I was worried that it was a bit of a goldfish situation where uh, you know, your goldfish dies and so then your mom and dad buy an exact replica. That's not true. And so I feel like there's a bit of a metaphor here that if the church staff can keep these plants alive during COVID, how much more will they care for us as members of the body of Christ? Uh, in all seriousness, it is a great honor to get a chance to share with you this morning from God's word and to ask him to speak to us by his word and to encourage us and to be growing us in godliness. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us, uh, this week, um, we've been in a, in a preaching series on the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, these books are about the transition that Israel has as a nation uh, into a monarchy, having a king that reigns over them. And the last several weeks, we've been hearing a lot about King David, uh, both, but, both for good, uh, but frequently in the last few weeks for ill. Uh, we see that David is like many of us. He's human uh, and he's sinful. And so our passage today from 2 Samuel 24, the last chapter in the book, uh, it's a really important passage for us to hear today. Uh, we live in a time that celebrates individual autonomy. Our, cul our culture celebrates individual expression. We love individual thinkers. Even our favorite films tend to be uh, the, the lone man who has to, you know, defeat all the baddies by himself, regardless of, you know, governments helping him or not. Uh, and we're encouraged to do likewise, to express ourselves uh, and to be, you know, to pull, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, uh, and to be individuals. But we also live in a moment right now where uh, this, the facade of our autonomy and self-assurance has been ripped open. Um, many of us individuals, our friends, our families, even our, our neighbors, we have felt this need that we actually need something outside of ourselves. We are not self-sufficient. We are dependent. 
Well, our passage this morning will, I think, speak directly to this issue. It reveals to us that we are all all in need of rescue. Uh, And the rescue that we require, that we need, can only come from the Lord. Uh, And so it's going to be an important passage for us this morning. So let's dig into 2 Samuel 24 together. And so as, as Laura read for us, we have a story about God's anger with Israel, both with David as king and with the people. Uh, and this story tells us the outworking of that punishment of the king and the people. Okay? And so the first thing uh, in our story that the writer wants us to know and grasp is that the Lord is sovereign over the punishment for sin. So look with me in your Bibles at the way our passage opens in verse 1. It tells us, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So we're told that the Lord here is angry with Israel again, and this would include David himself. Why is he angry? So if you kind of, if you kind of flipped back a few pages in your Bible, this is a unique passage because it's kind of set in a context that doesn't have an immediate, immediate context to tell us why the Lord is angry. Why is he angry with Israel? Well, one reason could be uh, just a few chapters back in 2 Samuel 15 with Absalom, his son, rebelling uh, against him. And many many, uh, people of Israel followed him. Uh, And then uh, just a few chapters after that, uh, the northern tribes of Israel have a rebellion against David as well. Uh, And then as uh, Matt preached a few weeks ago in 2 Samuel 21, uh, the the Lord was angry with Saul because of his treatment of the, the Gibeonites. So, so we have various reasons that could be the case, but I think actually uh, a very important aspect here is to reveal actually um, something about God's character. We don't need to know the circumstances of Israel's sin. It actually shows us that God's character will, be, will continually be committed to punishing Israel's sin and, and likewise for the sin of all of God's people. And so verse 1 then tells us that because the Lord was angry, he incited David against them. And so he incited David by telling David to go take a census of the people of Israel and Judah. Now, for some of us, this might, be, might seem a bit unintelligible. What does it mean? How does it work that God would incite David uh, because of his anger? Uh, and yet, at, as various other places in the Bible tells us, especially uh, we think about the epistle to James, uh, that God never tempts anyone. How does this work? Uh, and maybe to complicate the matters even further, if you looked at the parallel passage to our passage today uh, in the book of Chronicles, uh, it tells us not that God incited David, but actually Satan inside of David. And you think that's a really important detail to get correct. God or Satan, they're not really in the same category when we, when we think about it. Uh, and although uh, this might seem complicated and difficult, uh, we, it's, I think the problem actually isn't as difficult as we might think it is. I think what is occurring here is that the writer of Samuel is attributing to, to this situation uh, to God's general providence Uh, that everything that comes to pass must come through God. Whereas in the book of Chronicles, what we have is the writer of Chronicles actually giving us the way that God uses intermediaries in order to bring about his purposes. So one example that we see that I think we might all know is from uh, the way that God uses an intermediary is in the book of Job. If you recall the book of Job, the first chapter, um, Job is a very righteous and wise person. Uh, who loves the Lord. 
And so Satan comes into the heavenly court and challenges the Lord uh, for why Job loves him. And so what, uh, what God does is he allows Satan to, to tempt Job, but he does not allow him to take his life. And so we see that, um, that the Lord uses Satan in order to test Job. Uh, he limits the amount, he limits the context of judgment, but ultimately everything takes place because God allows it to happen. And so our passage in Samuel then affirms that the Lord is the Lord of the universe, as many of our Psalms tells us. He has complete dominion over all powers and authorities, whether in heaven or on earth, as the Apostle Paul will tell us in Ephesians. And the Bible also affirms that God uses both spiritual beings and humans to bring about His purposes. And at times, these spiritual beings and humans can be used for God's purpose of judgment and of punishment. And so the fact that God is sovereign over our punishment from the beginning to the end for sin should actually bring us more comfort rather than less. So this shouldn't be a, an alarming thing. Actually, it should bring us more comfort because it means that God remains fully in control of the situation and He has the one, is the one who has set the boundaries and limits of that punishment. So a friend of mine recently, I was actually discussing this passage. He shared with me this story about when he was a, when he was a child and he, uh, he and his dad were, at, I think they were at a shopping mall and they went into a shop and he stole a magnet. He, you know, he stuck it in his pocket like a good little thief he is. And, um, and then later on, he confesses to his dad that, dad, I stole this magnet. And his dad, being, uh, being a good dad, a good Christian, uh, decides to take his son back to the shop uh, in order for his son to return his loot uh, and his dad made sure that his son reaped the consequences of his crime. But his dad was also there to ensure uh, that the shopkeeper's consequences for his son were proportionate to the crime and to his age. And so for, that, for, his, for my friend, this was a great comfort because his dad was always in control of the situation. So he could go in and receive the punishment knowing what was, that everything was going to be okay. His dad ensured that justice would be done but also of the limits of that punishment. And so we all should take comfort that God is sovereign over any punishment that he levies out. And because we know God is a good God, uh, most fully in the Lord Jesus, uh, we know that he is kind and merciful, and he is the one who can take any judgment, any punishments, and use them both for his glory and our good. Well, going, moving on in our text then, because the Lord is angry with Israel, he also instructs David, so he instructs David to go and take a census of the number of fighting men. Uh, and verse 2 tells us that David does this. He, he, he obeys the Lord here. And so he commands Joab, who is kind of his right-hand commander, uh, and the rest of his commanders to go throughout the land counting the number of men who could fight, uh, who were of fighting age uh, for when war would come. Now, if you look just a little bit down in your Bibles in verses 8 to 9, we see that this endeavor, the census, took almost 10 months of counting through, throughout the land. And Joab then uh, reports to David that there are 13,000 men who are capable of fighting for war. Now, we, you know, just to clarify here, taking a census isn't inherently sinful. So what the Lord asks David to do isn't a, isn't a sin, 
Um, God isn't all, you know, God isn't against counting things as much as I, I'm terrible at math. So I always wish that God would hate counting things, but that is not the case for me. Uh, but in fact, God at various other times asks Israel to uh, take a census in order to count their numbers. You know, we even have a whole book of the Bible named Numbers. So of course, God isn't against these sorts of things. But when we start counting uh, one temptation that we have, when we start analyzing the things that we have and that are in our control, uh, we have, uh, there is the temptation for pride to creep in. Uh, you know, when you're hypervigilant about your budget uh, and your bank account, you begin looking. And, and so then there's always the question, am I, am I doing this because I'm a good steward with what God has given me and I'm thankful for it and I want to spend my money wisely and be generous? Or do I do it uh, in order out of pride to see, look what I've done, look what I've saved. Or perhaps you've started your own business and you've started, you know, it was just you and you and, you know, your friend in a garage. Uh, but now look at your business now. Do you, do you reflect upon your numbers and see, look what the Lord has done. He has been so good, good for us. Or do you look and say, look what I've done. Look what I have built. Even churches are, can be very guilty of this. We count our membership roles. We see how many people uh, attend our services. Now it's how many uh, people log in at our time. I'm not saying that's what we do here at Colonel Light Gardens, but the temptation is there uh, for us. And so for us as a church, are we, do we swell in pride with our numbers? Or rather, are we overwhelmed by God's goodness in the way he's grown us? And so there's a fine line here. And so, well, David, like many of us, uh, he's like us, uh, a perfectly legitimate exercise of counting capable fighting men turns into a point of pride. David begins to probably trust in his own strength and in his own armies. Uh, and it's so easy for us to begin to think about that we are the ones responsible for our bank account or responsible uh, for the way our business has grown or for the, you know, the number of high distinctions we gave in class. Um, you know, I, I inherited these students and they were so low and I've brought them up. Look what I've done. No, but uh, the Lord is the one who's good. And we know that this is a bad idea uh, for David. Because uh, even Joab, David's commander, thinks this is a bad idea. Look at verse 3 with me. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? Now, so Joab is David's commander, and if you've been with us uh, through this series, you know what kind of guy Joab is. He is the guy you want on your side when things have to get a little dirty. Okay, he's the kind of, you know, he's the friend that you want when things go south at the pub on a Saturday night. Okay, because, you know, you're going to you're going to come out all right. And so if a guy like Joab knows that this is a bad idea, it's a bad idea, David. And so but David presses on. And so after this 10 month process of taking the census, when he hears the number of fighting men he has, something happens in David. He is he's actually struck by his own sin. And so David understands his sin. And what does he do? Well, he repents. He admits his failures and seek, he repents by seeking to turn away from his sin. So look at verse 10 here. David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. 
Friends, when we have sinned, repentance is always the right response. But unfortunately, if you're like me, uh, we don't always respond in repentance immediately. Rather, we like to stay resolute. We don't want to lose face because when we repent, we have to, we're forced to admit our faults, uh, and admit our faults and that we've done wrong. Now, I'm sure that uh, many, uh, many of our youth who, who might be watching uh, know this experience. Uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, gossip is a very big uh, sin that we as a culture engage in, and so perhaps you've gossiped against a friend, uh, and that has come back to you, and you're confronted by it. Do you respond in repentance and ask for forgiveness, or do you put it off blaming somebody else or blaming something uh, some, uh, some other encounter, um, probably worse, the worst thing for our, you know, for our youth is when they realize their conscience is stricken, that their parents are correct and that they are wrong and they need to seek forgiveness. Do you, are you able to ask for forgiveness from your parents? Do you seek it? We can think about brothers and sisters in our church when we sin against one another is our first response to seek repentance to seek forgiveness. Uh, definitely husband and, husbands and wives know what I'm, I'm speaking on here. Do we, do we go to one another in repentance when we realize we are wrong, or do we stay resolute in it, refusing to budge? And parents, uh, we also need to learn this skill. Uh, we have to admit when we are wrong against our children. And I think what a better way to model what it looks like to seek repentance by asking our children for forgiveness. And I have to admit, this is very difficult for me. I'm not sure if you've ever had to ask forgiveness from a toddler for when you're a bit angry, but it is frustrating. But this is what David teaches us here. He is stricken of conscience and he confesses his sin and he asks the Lord to remove the guilt uh, of it. And... Because of this, because God is holy and he desires us, his children, to be, to be like him, holy, God will discipline his people. He will discipline and punish for sin. Um, and when God's punishment comes, our passage not only uh, teaches us to accept it, but also to fall on God's mercy and we can fall on God's mercy in those times of punishment because he is merciful and compassionate. So look at verses 11. If you look at verses 11 to 13, David realizes his sin. And so in 11 to 13, the Lord sends a prophet named Gad. Uh, and he brings a word, of the Lord, a word from the Lord to David. And here David is given three options as a punishment. Quite unique, actually, to, to be receiving options here. It's a bit like a choose-your-own-adventure book. You know, if you've seen these books where you... You know, you read a bit and then you get, a, you know, the book gives you a choice of which, which way to go. And then you get to flip to those places and then you get these sorts of things. But instead of a choose your own adventure, choose your own punishment, David, what will you do? Will you take three years of famine? Will you take three months of running away from your enemies? Or will you take three days of a plague? That's a good question. What would you rather? It's a good question over coffee or lunch. Which one would you rather take? What David decides to do, David chooses to fall on the mercy of the Lord. So look at verse 14. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into, into human hands. Let's just be honest. Punishment is terrible. We hate it. 
If you enjoy punishment, if you enjoy pain, we have a psychological term for people like you. Uh, But for most of us, this isn't the case. David is distressed by the choice. And so instead of choosing one, he instead just chooses the one he does not want, which is fleeing from his enemies. Now, this might seem might kind of seem like a selfish choice, uh, but it doesn't take long to read in other parts of Samuel and David's on the run. What happens when Israel doesn't have a king? It's not good. Um, So this isn't David making a selfish choice. It is the fact that none of these are great choices for David to choose. But what does he choose? He can't actually actually choose. He doesn't want to be thrown into the hands of his enemy. He's seen what that looks like in chapter 21 when the Gibeonites demand, uh, when the Gibeonites are given a choice for what they desire in terms of punishment. Uh, And perhaps David's run from Saul for 12 years and from his son Absalom has shown him, I do not want this. And it is not good for the people. So David asked the Lord, please take that off the plate. And the reason why is because God, if, if God is the one who chooses, God will be merciful. And so David doesn't choose between the famine or the plague. Instead, he chooses to leave himself and the nation at the mercy of the Lord. And the reason, because the Lord is great in mercy. And we can think about the number of times in our Bibles when God demonstrates that He is merciful. We think about the Exodus event where where the Lord rescues His people from the bondage of slavery. We think about the number of times that uh, that they rebel in the wilderness from the Lord, but the Lord is kind and merciful. Most of all, just if you just go home and after while you're home, read the gospel accounts and the number of times when Jesus heals the blame, raises the dead, um, heals the blind, gives sight, you know, he gives sight. And what does it tell us? Well, it, because Jesus is motivated by his compassion. Our God is a compassionate God and he's merciful. And so, yes, there is punishment for sin because God is holy. But God is also kind and compassionate. And so the reality of the punishment takes place in verse 15. So God punishes Israel and God sends a plague and 70,000 people die. Uh, This is probably a good part in the sermon just to hit the pause button and just to think about plague. Because, uh, you know, in in other times uh, prior to COVID, we probably wouldn't think much about this in our society. But all of a sudden we are living in an age uh, with, with the spread of virus and, and the reality of people dying. And so we should probably per- pause and just think about our own situation a bit about the pandemic. And this is probably a question that you've already received or maybe you're having yourself. Is COVID a sign of God's punishment for sin? Is this God's judgment? Uh, is, is what we are experiencing right now in our world the result of sin? And the answer is yes. But we have, a, we have to have a very important caveat when we say yes. Okay, So Genesis 3 tells us about uh, human rebellion against God. And one of the consequences of that rebellion is that God puts the created order under a curse. He still upholds that universe. He upholds it by Christ until Christ returns and when he will make all things new. But until then, the world we live in is under a curse. Um, there are various points in our Bibles where the Lord uses calamity as a means to bring people back into relationship with Him. And it is a point in which people should evaluate their own standing before a holy God. And so COVID 
should be encouraging all of us. And I have to admit, I have not always done this. It's taken me a while. It's actually probably taken this sermon to prepare to think, man, I have not been evaluating my own life in light of this calamity. And that is exactly the way the Lord has used this throughout the Bible. And I would encourage all of us to spend time thinking and evaluating our own lives in light of it. Now, in terms of what what can we say, I think an important text for us to consider is John chapter 9. Uh, In this this story of John chapter 9, this is where uh, Jesus and the disciples are uh, are walking along and they see a blind man. And the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned for this man to become blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus' answer is very important for for this question. Jesus says, neither. This man was born blind in order for the work of God to be manifested, for the work of God to be seen and displayed. And so what Jesus is saying here, actually you cannot pinpoint this man's blindness based on a particular sin, either him or his family. And and for, for us, it is a mistake, and it is a mistake for us or anybody else to be pinpointing COVID as the result of a particular sin, rather that COVID is a sign of many of signs that have preceded us for centuries, that it is a sign of living in a cursed world that is still upheld by the Lord, but will be made new when Christ returns. So that's the kind of end of that little bracket of the sermon. So let's get back to David here. Uh, And for David, just as punishment can be expected for sin, God's mercy is always coupled with his punishment. So look at verse 16 and the way this comes out. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So the important thing to note here is how God's mercy comes about. God is merciful, but our passage says a bit more that we that is really important for us to get. How does it come out? Well, it comes out, comes about because the anointed king functions as a mediator for the people. So look at verse 17. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. So David prays for God's mercy. He confesses his sin and he desires to take on the punishment of what is happening for the people. He desires to take that on himself. So David here, as the anointed king, he recognizes his unique place in Israel. He is their king. He is their anointed king. He is, and as a good anointed king under the Lord, he, he, he cares more about the well-being of his people rather than his own well-being. Now, uh, as ad- admirable as David is here, there is a problem with what David desires to do. There is a problem because he actually cannot take on the punishment of his people. He himself is a sinner. And so there is, he is unable to provide the means that he wishes. So what does the Lord do? Because obviously the Lord knows this. What does he do? Well, he instructs David to build an altar 
and to make sacrifices. So he, so in our in our passage here, he instruct the Lord instructs David to go build an altar to make sacrifices, and so he's he's to go and buy the threshing floor of a guy named Aruna, and he is to build an altar and offer the sacrifices there. Now there are two really important points uh, in this section of our Bible of our passage. Um, the first is that the plague will only be removed through sacrifice. So look at what David says in verse 21 to Aruna when he asks, when Aruna um, wonders why David has come. Why has the Lord my king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. So the punishment for sin only ends when atonement is made. And the second thing that this, this section of our passage highlights is that atonement is costly. So let's look at uh, the rest of our passage in verses 22 to 25. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are our oxen for, for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna said to, to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekel of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. So when Aruna hears uh, that David desires to build an altar in order to stop the plague, he is willing to get everything, give everything, which makes sense. You know, obviously, if the plague is happening around you, you and this is what the king has come to do, yes, of course. And so Aruna, take anything you want. Uh, take my land, take my oxen. Here's the wood that you can use. Here, let me light the match for you. But David understands for a sacrifice to be a sacrifice it must be costly. You must be willing to give something away and deprive himself in order to demonstrate that all he has belongs to the Lord. This is, uh, you know, not foreign to us. Kind of do a thought experiment here. Imagine it's your your beloved grandmother's birthday, uh, and this is a grandmother who's probably a matriarch of your family. Uh, she has done so much for you and all your cousins and your brothers and sisters, uh, and it's a big birthday. She's 80, 90 years old, and you want to celebrate and you want to honor her. And so you're going to give a gift to express the ways that she has uh, been with you, supported you financially, uh, uh, loved you, various things. Um, And so you want to express your honor and your love in a gift. And so as you're thinking about what, what am I going to get grandma? You know, she's been so important to me. And then you remember that Aunt Jane gave you a Christmas gift that just does not fit with your decor. Maybe it's a, I've got one of these. It's a platter dish that's crystal, so it's costly, but it just doesn't go with my things. I'm never going to use it. You're like, you know what? I'm going to re-gift this for grandma. Now, I, I think this is a bit funny because we all know that this is not honoring to your grandmother, this beloved uh, woman who has cared for you and supported you. And the reason we know 
that it's not honoring to her because it cost you nothing. Sacrifices must be costly, but what you receive in return from sacrifices is everything because what you receive is life itself reconciled to your God. And so what David does is he, he buys what he needs, buys the land, oxen, wood, pays Aruna for it, and he makes sacrifices as the Lord is instructed, and the plague was stopped. So we've, uh, we've traveled a great distance over many, many weeks in the book of Samuel 1 and 2. Um, God, from the beginning, has set out to redeem himself, a people of all nations, tongues, tribes. And in order to do this, he rescued a particular people named Israel from Egypt, and he gave them a royal commission as, uh, as, royal, as a kingdom of priests. Uh, but when we picked up in the book of Samuel, this people who were supposed to be a kingdom of priests are in spiritual decay and corruption at every level from the leader to its people. But now we end the book of Samuel with Israel reunited around their anointed King David, a king who is described as being after God's own heart and who God himself has given an enduring eternal promise, an enduring dynasty that a Davidic king would sit on the throne forever and that this Davidic king would be the means by which God moves forward in his mission of redemption. And, they, and this book ends with David purchasing the real estate where the temple will be. And the book of Chronicles tells us actually that this place is Mount Moriah, where Abraham in Genesis 22 went to sacrifice Isaac before the Lord provided another sacrifice in a ram. And so our book ends with the Davidic king offering sacrifices in order to remove the plague as the result of sin away from the people of Israel. Now, although we've seen many wonderful things about King David, we've also seen some pretty horrendous things about David in our, in our series. Uh, he's committed adultery uh, with one of his closest warriors. He arranged his murder. Um, he over and over shows to be an inept father. He's a sinner. But in spite of all the good things about David and the hope that we can expect in the line, these, these aspects of David, the way he falls short, shows us our need for the greater King David, a king who is of the Davidic line, who is more just, and who is more righteous. And of course, this points us, as Cam highlighted for us last week, it points us to the Lord Jesus, who is the son of David. And so like David, the Lord Jesus serves as our mediator. But unlike David, the Lord Jesus did not sin, and so he did not need to be punished by God for his sins. But rather, he takes upon himself the sin and punishment, the plague, that we all deserve in order to satisfy it on our behalf. And like David, Jesus makes a sacrifice to atone for sin. But unlike David, David needed to sacrifice animals that would need to be re-sacrificed again and then re-sacrificed again. The Lord Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. 
There is no more need for sacrifices because He is the perfect one. He is the true and final sacrifice. And so, friends, that's where 1 and 2 Samuel leaves us, showing us the need we all have for a mediator, something, someone outside of us. You are not invincible. You have great need. And so may the Spirit grant us the humility to recognize our need and the strength to fall upon the mercy of our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. Amen.